Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've got mail! <laughs> you forgot, didn't you? You're... Like, right, right when you started recording, you forgot which podcast we were doing. No. <laughs> we do so many, you see. No. No. This is We've Got Mail. This is our mail podcast. We yeah. answer letters from you, the dear listeners. Yeah, it's where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, for the pur- purposes of this podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. And we insist that you do. If 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 you must. Yeah. I, I also go by my actual name. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, this is the show where every week we answer your emails or sometimes your physical letters. That have been sent through the mail. We answer your questions. We respond to your criticism. Uh, we give recommendations. We take recommendations. Uh, basically, this is your show. This is the show that we want to give to you as much as we possibly can. Uh, if you want to join in that conversation, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Uh, you can write us a physical letter. Uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And uh, somebody sent us a thing. Yeah, that was real nice. Yeah, yeah we, got, uh, we were sent a pair, a matching pair of Elvira Mistress of the Dark Mugs. Uh, Elvira is uh, a hero of ours. Yes. Uh, she, she looms very large in our lives. Uh, the sitcom that she did, the, I think it was just called The Elvira Show, mm. uh, maybe one of the best sitcoms I've ever seen. Certainly the funniest. One of the funniest. I, I think the funniest sitcom we've ever covered on Cancel Too Soon, mm. by far. Uh, and yeah, she's just sort of a, a, a figure of renown and a figure of respect in our lives. So to, to get some Elvira mugs and to drink out of her her beautiful visage is is a a sheer delight if we were uh uh to create a pantheon of uh film gods people Mm. who don't necessarily make movies but have been responsible for uh uh what's what i'm looking for Mm. curating movies and making Mm. sure that we care you know we guiding us people like roger ebert would be in that list yeah and so would elvira yeah definitely uh, on on the mount rushmore it's uh, roger ebert (laughs) Elvira, <laughs> Pauline Kale, <laughs> Pauline Kale, and Belial from Basket Case. Those are the those yeah. are the four. Um, <laughs> maybe not where I was going with this, but anyway. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. That means a lot to us. Thank mm. you. You're really wonderful. Uh, but yeah, it's time to get into some letters. Let's uh, get uh, some some actual letters. We didn't get it? any uh, physical letters in our PO box, but no. don't let that from stopping you from sending your. You own. don't have to do it every uh, single week. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you to those but, who already uh, have. But here is I an hope e- see more later. But we do still get emails, and here yes. is an email from RJ. Hello, RJ. Hi, RJ. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, firstly, I really like to thank you for the recent reshuffling of your Patreon tiers, which is something we did recently. Yeah. Uh, I've happily been subscribed at at least the one dollar tier for some time now, but was really eager to listen to your only the best podcast. Now that it's available for me for just four pounds a month, I was very quick to switch tiers. Now I'm uh, now I just have to find time to listen to them. Uh, <laughs> We have don't, a, don't break your back. Uh, we do that, no. what, but you don't have to. Well, what what, what happened was we uh, we changed some of our tiers in our Patreon page, and we uh, mm-hmm. had our uh, monthly podcast, Only the Best, where we review every film ever nominated for Best Picture, five at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we decided to put that at our five dollar tier to replace something that we decided just a show we decided wasn't didn't have legs. Uh, and, but the cool thing about it is that with that $5 tier, if you weren't subscribed before, you get the whole back catalog of it. Mm. So that's probably at least 20, 25 hours of, uh, 
Oh, definitely. Of show, yeah, I that's think, a lot. at this point. It's a, well, give or take, but, like, it's a lot. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. So, hopefully you're enjoying them. And, uh, yeah, it's one of our favorite things to do. So, really glad you're digging it. Uh, now, uh, what uh, I wanted to discuss is actually related to Edgar Wright's upcoming film, Last Night in Soho. One uh, night in Soho makes up the bad grumble. Uh, I, 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 the I, uh, through no fault of my own, I actually saw a preview for that one. Oh, okay. And, uh, and There's I, that, that preview doesn't seem to give a lot away. It's hard to say no, like, what's going on in the uh, film. Hooray, Anya yeah. Taylor-Joy. I like yeah. her. And, and who is the other... Thomas and McKenzie is the other actress, I think? I don't know, actually. Um, yeah. I, I, mm. I, I've, I've avoided more than you have. Okay. <laughs> uh, but Edgar Wright's got a new horror movie coming out. He has, yeah. Um, so in the lead-up to its release, the BFI are hosting a series of screenings curated by Wright, showing various films he used as inspiration for Last Night in Soho, including cool. the lights of John Schlesinger's Darling and Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy. As I own some of these films on Blu-ray, I thought it would be fun to check them out before seeing his new picture, but then I wondered if I should wait. My question to you both is, do you think it's more gratifying to see these influences before watching a film or after? On the one hand, seeing them before allows you to deconstruct and appreciate what a filmmaker is trying to do, but on the other hand, I find it incredibly satisfying to see these influences after the fact and allow the original film in question to grow in quality. Also, just as it came up a couple of podcasts recently... I thought I'd share this story with you. When I was a kid, maybe seven or eight, mm-hmm. I was in a small DVD shop with my mom, the kind that exists in small areas of my country that tend to sell a lot of obscure stuff. I noticed a copy of Flesh Gordon 2. Yay! Knowing that my mom grew up with Flash Gordon, I very loudly insisted in front of everyone, Mom, didn't you watch that one? She very quickly grabbed my hand and led me out of the store. So I actually wandered into the adult section and found Flesh Gordon 2, promptly telling everybody my mom watched it. Take care of yourselves, and thank you for all your hard work, RJ. That's hilarious. Um, Flesh Gordon, there is like, there's an X-rated cut. I think it is an X-rated film, Mm -hmm. but it's, there's also a cut that's not quite as explicit. So you can watch Flesh Gordon with, you know, plenty of nudity, but no actual hardcore scenes. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is a hardcore version of Flesh Gordon 2. I think you know way more about it. I than think I it's. Do. I think it's plenty naughty, but it, you know, yeah. it's not. Oh, I hope so. Without like Flesh Gordon, it'd be yeah, weird. Like, if it like was it's, it's, like, it's supposed to be you know, yeah. incredibly bawdy, but I don't think it's straight up hardcore pornography. Okay. Um, uh, anyway, uh, fair enough. Fle- Flesh Gordon too, however, is not something you trumpet out to strangers. That's something you have yeah. to make sure you're okay with the other person before you start talking about. Darn tootin. Uh But uh, as for your other question, um, so Edgar Wright is one of the filmmakers uh, working today who's very, very clear about their influences. Uh, other other folks along the same line, uh, obviously Quentin Tarantino uh, is very, very uh, open about when he's influenced by something, directly or indirectly. Um and uh, when you're watching a film by Edgar Wright or by Tarantino or by any other filmmaker who uh, is, or uh, 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 Ryan Johnson's another one who's very comfortable just saying, I took this shot from Wings. Um, the, the types of filmmakers who are so influenced by film, all they do is, well, maybe not all they do. Yeah, but, it's a, well, they're, it's they're, productive. They're, they're primary filmmaking uh Mark of style mm-hmm. is that they imitate. They take well, scenes and and quote well, uh, the, their favorite. There's that old. Their there's that old movies. line. Uh, good artists borrow. Bad art. Uh, bad artists borrow. Good artists steal. Mm. Uh, but um, and and Hitchcock did the same thing. A lot of filmmakers have mm. taken things, shots that they liked, images that they liked, moments, dramatic beats, and adapted them into their own stories because that has become part of their storytelling vernacular. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing really wrong with it. Uh, sometimes it's more distracting than others, uh, which brings me to my point. When it's distracting is when you know what they're referencing. 
Uh, and that's mm. not necessarily a bad thing. They want you to notice, usually. It's very uncommon that Brian De Palma will like pay homage to Hitchcock and not want you to know what he's doing. Mm. That's kind of the fun of it. I think a lot of filmmakers uh, have a good... I think a lot of filmmakers who are good at this are able to tell a story while still winking a little bit. And they are able to tell a story that the audience can appreciate on its own terms while also kind of appreciating uh, the movie itself as its own entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, do Does it behoove you to know all the references before you see the film? Uh, I think it goes either way. Uh, I often notice the, the references that some of these filmmakers are using. I don't always. Sometimes mm-hmm. I haven't seen the film. Uh, but, uh, I, here's what I would, here's what I would say. If you're excited enough by this list of films, and I don't even know what's on the list other than what you mentioned, uh, for last night in Soho, uh, that you really want to see them do. Mm. Uh, but what I will say is that you probably will only have this one chance to see the film without recognizing those influences. So if that's important to you, Mm. if that seems like something that would be exciting to you not to know, Go for it yeah, by all means, is. but it's up to you. It all depends on how you want to. Do mm. you want to play the scavenger hunt that Edgar Wright is clearly comfortable with you playing, or do you want to just enjoy the film on its own terms? And I think both ways are valid. I think uh, when it comes to somebody like uh, Edgar Wright, who speaks in a lot of quotations, mm. uh, it might be best to not know what he's quoting first to see how it stands as a film. Mm. Uh, it's possible to uh, get so involved with spotting references and appreciating that he's quoting certain shots that you lose sight of the story that he's making. And maybe he even lost sight of the story he's telling. Mm. He was so enthused about his influences that he forgot to bring anything of his own to it. Yeah, I've noticed that happening with, with certain kinds of ultra-stylized movies that, that quote other films. I think Baby Driver suffers from ba- that. Yeah, I think it's, it's a Baby good Driver. car chase movie. There's cool stuff in it, but, but if, it if feels more like a collection of influences than its own yeah, tale. If you haven't seen The Driver, then Baby yeah. Driver isn't going to make as much sense to you. If you have seen The Driver, then, oh, all of a sudden everything falls into place. But you need that context. There's a pretense to Baby Driver. Yeah. And I feel like that's uh, very much... Edgar Wright's metier. That's mm. the, how he works. So I would recommend with Edgar Wright in particular, go in as blind as possible. Okay. And then go back and watch films like Frenzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, with other filmmakers, they are good enough about sort of bringing their own style to it that even if they are influenced by other films, it's still their own unique product. So you can appreciate mm. it both ways. Yeah. Whether you know the, the source or not. I think Edgar Wright, however, is a special case. I think Edgar Wright, every single film Edgar Wright makes, even though it's definitely an Edgar Wright movie, mm-hmm. Uh, they don't necessarily feel like they're of a piece. I would say The World's End doesn't feel like Scott Pilgrim, even mm. though they both have you know action sequences and they're both yeah. comedies. I would say Baby Driver doesn't feel like Hot Fuzz, even though they're both ostensibly in the action genre. Yeah. Uh, I think he's trying to adapt to each different type of style that he's working in, whereas every Tarantino movie, no matter how different it is, feels like a Tarantino joint. Mm. Uh, he's always putting his own stamp on it, um, and uh, and sometimes sometimes effectively, sometimes less so. But, uh, yeah. So, in any case, it's, what it boils down to is it's your choice. Uh, if you are excited and want to do it, cool. But, I, you know, as Whitney said, maybe this isn't the best opportunity, and maybe this is an opportunity for you to go in fresh 
uh, and appreciate it on its own. But I will never discourage anyone who wants to learn about yeah. film history from doing so at any time. Oh, it's just, oh, God, I just know uh, that if you do it now, the movie might turn into a bit of a scavenger hunt. Yeah, um, Worst things have happened. I'm, I, I understand I'm a little bit odd in that when I see a film coming out and I haven't seen like the previous films in the series, it's like mm. a sequel or if it's an adaptation of a book, I don't do research ahead of time because mm. I want to make sure that film can stand on its own. Yeah. Uh, if I have all of this, you know, back catalog of knowledge that's going to maybe unduly influence my view of that film. Yeah. Uh, and I understand a lot of people like to do it the opposite. If they see a, a new film's coming out, they want to read the book first to mm-hmm. see how they did the film adaptation and compare the two yeah. right away. Well, you can't always control that. Sometimes you just simply have well, read the yeah, book or whatever. Yeah. But for me, uh, I, tr- I don't like, if it's an adaptation, I don't run out and read the original thing. Yeah. Uh, because the movie has to stand on its own. If it is part of a franchise that I haven't seen all of, I do try to see the franchise because that's. Mm. The, I do feel like the movie isn't standing on its own. It's standing as a piece, mm. you know, the next like a continuation, the next, a continuation, and as a result, seeing the whole thing mm. adds context that the movie expects you to have. It's not about, uh, you know, it's not supposed to stand completely on its own. Mm. It is a sequel. And I think understanding that but is a, a, is a little useful. bit of uh, a little bit of establishing what the world is from this new film's perspective mm-hmm. is important. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, know, you there. I think Marvel movies sometimes suffer from this, for example, yeah, uh, where they just it's like we take just you for of, granted. Exactly. It's like you you know this is a magical universe. There's heroes here. We don't have right. to lower you in every time. There's been 25 mm-hmm. films of these now. Uh, but you know, you watch a Nightmare on Elm Street four. They still there's still a scene of exposition where they explain what happened and yeah. how it's remembered, and that actually is relevant to the way that film operates. Mm. Um, call call me a stickler, call me old fashioned, but yeah, I, li- I like to sort I of every film to sort of stand on its own. I think both approaches are valid, and right. I think uh, the fact that we come at these things from slightly different angles hopefully mm. makes for an interesting conversation. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Well, let's uh, move on to another letter. Right, but thank here, you for that. Here's a letter from Doctor Nova. Ooh. Hello, Doctor Nova. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I was Dr. Nova. That's a great name. <laughs> I've been spending the last few months exploring non-American movies because America makes the same movies over and over again. Uh, can't, can't really argue that. Yeah. Uh, I turned to Bollywood, oh. which does exactly that, but I've only seen three of them. Uh, Bollywood has Americans as the bad guys, or idiots, or both, <laughs> when they rather have Americans in the films at all. Uh, the ones I find interesting uh, to watch is uh, My Name is Khan. I remember when that came out. A 2010 movie. The, this is the full description. Rizwan Khan is a Muslim from the Borivali section of Mumbai. He has Asperger's syndrome. He marries a Hindu single mother, Mandira in San, excuse me, Mandira in San Francisco. After 9-11, Rizwan is detained by the authorities at LAX who treat him as a terrorist because of his condition and his race. It's an inter- interesting seeing movies about 9-11 and American racism from the perspective of actual Muslim creators. You should watch it if you haven't already. Dr. Nova. Um, there used to be a theater uh, here. At, it was over in Culver City. It's close to where we are. That was the second run theater. It was really cheap. You could see movies for like four or five dollars. Yeah. Uh, like weeks after they had already been released. And they had a really thriving Bollywood scene. And I was able to see a couple Bollywood films at that theater. Um, I th- does the, the theater over at the, uh, at the Howard Hughes place still show Bollywood films? You know, I haven't, been, I haven't been since the pandemic started, so yeah, I can't okay. say for certain. Yeah, the, they, they used to anyway. Um, India has an enormous film industry. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's even bigger than the United States. And, uh, 
Unfortunately, not a lot of them make their way to the United States, which is a pity because there's a lot to choose from. Uh, referring to Bollywood as kind of a genre, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, the kinds of films we get here in uh, the United States, the Bollywood films tend to be the big long musicals. They, they tend to be the uh, three-hour-plus love story epic story of a life, and then there's all, a bunch of songs in it. And those things are really, really exciting, but there's, of course... Film, Bollywood films of every genre. Hmm. And I feel under, even though I've seen plenty of Bollywood films, I still feel underwatched. There's, there's just too much. So, um, I appreciate when anybody tries to, any, any American audience member tries to take in a Bollywood film because you're expanding a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm actually criminally under, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Under research, under under under, under read, under read. Yeah, what's what's the the uh, when it comes to Bollywood? It, 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 and it's there's there's a lot. Bollywood is an incredibly uh, mm. prolific yeah, yeah. section of uh, of filmmaking, and uh, I I honestly don't know where to begin. Uh, and usually, <laughs> when I what I advise people is begin wherever you can. Mm. Pick a thing, find a recommendation, find yeah. a critic you like who rec- highly recommends one thing or another. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I I tap out of this one. This is definitely not my uh, uh, definitely not my subject. Uh, so, uh, but it, enjoy your journey. Mm. It's great, and one of these days, I really hope well, I get to sit down and well, take a deep dive myself. You just got a recommendation, didn't you? I did. Yes, so. I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> so maybe you can start there. Maybe um, I will. Yeah, the, I think the first uh, Bollywood film I saw was Lagan. Uh, that mm. one was up for an Academy Award. Um, yeah, that was a big crossover like, hit like over here. Yeah. Mid 2000s. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. That was my first sort of foray. And uh, it was really wonderful. I've got, I got to see three idiots on the big screen. That was a big hit. Uh, I got to see race, which is like the, the Bollywood fast and furious riff. Nice. Uh, yeah, that was, that one was really fun too. That's cool. Okay. Uh, I'm getting a lot of recommendations. This yeah. is awesome. Thank you. But Thank like you. I said, I, I can't recommend too many because I haven't seen enough. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, this is this is. But a, you enjoyed what you've seen. Yeah. Oh, okay. and oh, you know what? Uh, Netflix is actually really good about. Um, they do actually have a better than a better... pretty, pretty good Bollywood yeah. section yeah. As, as streaming services go. Yeah. You know, in the United States. Yeah, I, I don't know how like uh, if you're an expert in the genre or the the mm. uh, the field. Uh, if you would say that Netflix has a lot of the best movies, but they do certainly have a lot. Yeah. So especially mm-hmm. compared to a lot of other, uh, you know, compare the Bollywood section of Netflix to their classics section. <laughs> the, Bollywood you know, wins oh, out their, quite handily. Their classic section, you mean those four movies? Yeah. And they're all from 1984. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's a letter from Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Susan. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, uh, sadly, this is about the long goodbye. Oh, 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 is that sad? Well, we're about to see how sad it oh, is. No. Um, I've tried to watch Robert Altman's neo-noir classic several times. And while I love the laconic mood and the ending, the quasi-diegetic soundtrack wherein It's a Long Goodbye <laughs> appears in several forms prevented me from enjoying it more. It reminded me of how in Altman's Tanner 88, the theme song was being used in several variations, but at least there's a ton of space between each use in that instance, mm-hmm. as opposed to the overbearing repetition of the long goodbye. Mm. I know there's at least one recent movie that you knocked down a bit due to the misplacement of the soundtrack, but what is the greatest movie whose soundtrack or music supervision left you underwhelmed? Ooh. Hope all is well. Sincerely, Ooh. Susan. That's an interesting question. Uh, for, uh, for those oh, who and, don't and know... A, and a P.S. My favorite Altman films have, have to be Nashville, Brewster McCloud, and Countdown. Uh, I actually haven't seen Countdown. I haven't or, seen Countdown have either. I Brewster yeah. McCloud? I might not have seen Brewster mm. McCloud either. But, um... Uh, so for those who uh, might not know what we're talking about, on a recent episode of our show, Critically Reclaimed, 
where we watch older movies on Netflix that are uh, on streaming rather mm-hmm. that uh, one or both of us haven't seen. Uh, these are voted on by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We watched uh, Robert Altman's uh, initially mixed reviews, but now considered classic modern film noir, uh, The Long Goodbye, starring Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. And uh, one of the the gimmicks, one of the, the storytelling tropes or, or gags mm. that Robert Altman employs is he takes the film's theme song... Uh, which was uh, composed at least, I think, partly if not entirely by John Williams. Uh, And uh, every single time someone's listening to a song in the movie, it's that song, but every single time you listen to it, it's a different orchestration. Mm. Uh, It's the, there'll be the elevator music version, there'll be the lounge singer version, there'll be the pop radio version. Um, And uh, I feel like this is a play off of a lot of the older Hollywood movies, which were uh, really only had like, Every movie had like one song to sell you. Yeah. And uh, they'll, they'll Moon, hit it really Moon hard. River. Yeah. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah. Other, uh, other crap by Burt Bacharach. Oh, hey. Hold on. Burt Bacharach is my arch enemy. I've explained this before. I'm going to say this right now. I think we can all agree his theme song to The Blob was good. Uh, I will give him the theme song to The Blob. Okay, thank you. Burt Bacharach composed The Blob theme song. <laughs> Beware of the blob, it creeps. And he, needs to do more, he needs to do more novelty hits. That was fine. <laughs> What the world ah. needs now is love, fleet, sweet love. Shut up. Go away. Don't, t- don't talk to me about background. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, your mileage might be, if you don't like the song, of course, you're kind of shit out of luck because mm. you're going to hear it a lot. Um, Whitney just hit upon an example that a lot of people would pick, I think, mm. of a good movie but annoying song, which would be uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, mm. which uh, is a Western, a, a very classy Western, very modern uh, presentation for the time. Uh, but there's this one really standout bit where uh, Paul Newman and is it Catherine Ross? Yes. Paul Newman and Catherine Ross uh, have a bicycle and they decide to play with a bicycle and mm. they go bicycling together. And, they and, it's bicycle. All, and it's all sweet and romantic. Yeah. And, and we have a lovely love ballad. Mm-hmm. Lovely in quotation marks. Yeah. Love ballad. And uh, it's uh, Burt Bacharach's Raindrops mm-hmm. Falling on My Head. And that doesn't mean my eyes will soon oh be turning red. Why would they be turning red? It's rain. Wait, is it is it chlorinated? Why would it be? It <laughs> Acid rain keeps it falling be, on my head. It's the old west. It shouldn't be doing that. Um, but uh, the mood. Here's the deal. I remember uh, when uh, the movie uh, A Knight's Tale came out, and A mm. Knight's Tale was D- deliberately inaccurate. Well, there was there were two gimmicks in A Knight's Tale. One is that. It was a sports movie, but the sport was medieval jousting, like in medieval times. So they played it like a sports movie, and they played it very modern and contemporary, but everyone was wearing, you know, armor mm-hmm. and, you know, medieval gowns were, and everything. Were, but weren't they, like, were they actually wearing sneakers, or um, am I thinking of something else? I, th- I think you're thinking of something else, right. but I could be wrong. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but my point is this. It played in a very modern context, because it played like a modern sports movie, but set in the Middle Ages. But in addition to that, they also had a lot of anachronistic Music and they would play like uh, "Golden Years" by David Bowie and shit. Um, the, in, in the stands of the yeah. jousting tournaments, they sing "We Will Rock You" by yeah. Queen. And I remember uh, uh, people made a big deal of this. Oh, all this anachronistic music! How weird! And I, I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been, uh, I think it was Brian Helgeland directed that one, mm. and uh, I, th- I think it was an interview with him or someone else working on the film. And they were talking about here's the thing about anachronistic music in movies set in the past. It's always anachronistic. If you <laughs> enjoy that, right. if you enjoy that big sweeping orchestral score mm. when you're watching a medieval movie, they didn't have those. Yeah, I, uh, 
I forgot which um, composer pointed this out. He uh, was a composer for um, a lot of like mainstream Hollywood comedies, like mm-hmm. Major Pain. Um, like I could look up his name. Uh, he came. I'll to, do it. I'll he do came it. to speak at our school and uh, specifically he, Major Pain. Speci- he did. Yeah, he did do the score okay. of Major Pain and other right. films as well. All right, um, I'll find out. But he was very proud of Major Pain in particular because there's a scene where uh, there's no dialogue whatsoever, and he got to dictate sort of the comedy beats in that scene through just the music, ah. and he felt that he did a very good job, and indeed he did. There's a narrative going on in that scene that is told through the actual the musical cues that he wrote, okay. he himself wrote. That's uh, like Craig um, Safin, S A F A N. He composed the music for Cheers. And uh, he worked on A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. <laughs> oh, there we go. Another reference to Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Keeps, keeps following us around. Still working today. Uh, I'm trying to think of the last like major thing. Uh, he hasn't done anything like major in a while. Uh, let's see. In the 90s, he did Slappy and the Stinkers. All right. Uh, he did the uh, Ellen DeGeneres, Bill Pullman rom-com. Mr. Wrong. Mr. Wrong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Uh, he, he came to talk to our, at our school. That's cool, <laughs> man. And, uh, and he... Uh, he said that his favorite and least favorite scores were the ones you would hear in uh, like Roman epics, you know, mm. like your 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 Ben Hur's and your Spartacuses and your the robes. And uh, he liked them because they were always very evocative and you know they they felt very historical. There's a lot of brass on those soundtracks, and also completely inaccurate because that's not what Roman music sounded like at all. Like it's yeah. it's much more influenced by Baroque music. And uh, hey, if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Oh my god! And, Why? Uh, I, I laid it out there in front of you, and you still stabbed it. Because uh, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that those are bomb, 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 bomb. Those sort of like bombastic brass tones. They didn't have those instruments in ancient Rome, and uh, nobody. I I think maybe the TV show Rome is the maybe one of the only examples of like a Roman set piece that tried to tell the story with actual Roman music. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, uh, historical epics never have those sort of anachronisms. It's totally fair to use whatever you want. Pretty much, yeah. You, you uh, can, you can you put, might, it might be distracting. Rock, it might uh, be distracting, but that's the thing to yeah, be aware of. You can of. put electric guitars on, on your you know medieval yeah. uh, knights epic, and then um, it's totally legit. Uh, I will say another one where uh, just it's just mm. one song, uh, but the song really takes me out of the movie. Mm. Uh, it's uh, the love before time. Uh, from mm. Crouch and Tiger, Hidden Dragon. <laughs> it's such a di- it's yeah. such a different movie. You're watching this movie. It's this glorious, grand wuxia epic. I rewatched it not that long ago. It holds up great, uh, better than I remember it actually. Which is I remember it being good. Mm. Um, and then right in the credits, there's this hammy. <laughs> oh, just I don't even know what other movie it's from, but it's. Stinks. Like, it's not a good movie. It's not a good song in a vacuum. Hmm. And it was nominated for Best Original Song at the Academy Awards. It was definitely riding some kind of wave. And yeah, it just ended on a weird, awkward note. Hmm. I'm not a big fan. Of, I'm always amused by movies that just end on a weird song. Like, that's take you off on like an odd note. Well, yeah. I, sometimes it's done really, really well. Uh, one of my favorite uh, ones of those ever is Lars Venture's Dogville. Uh, which oh, which ends, ends on a with great... young, young Americans. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I wasn't going to say, but like, oh, yeah, well. it's, it's an incredibly dreary movie, but it ends on this song by David Bowie, which is incredibly, like, it's cynical, I mm-hmm. think, but it's also very upbeat. 
And uh, it's exactly what you need at the end of that movie. Like, oh god, thank you, thank you for but letting us walk out with something. There's like, some like energy there's, in there's life. There's some energy. Of course, yeah. it's it's being told incredibly, incredibly ironically, and it's yeah. being played over like the most depressing photo montage. But you need it, though. I think you need it. Okay. I really, really do. I think that movie would really, really suffer without it. Uh, anything mm. else come to mind? Um, like really bad. I, I know of like really bad, um, like pop music selections that kind of take mm. you out of the movie occasionally. Yeah. Um, one that a lot of people noticed because it was so bad was in uh, the second It film. Oh, there's yeah. There was a scene there's... where one of the characters, like, and that's a movie all about how these characters are facing their fears, and there's a supernatural monster who is evoking their particular phobias, and one of them is uh, is uh, afraid of being sick. He's afraid of illness, and yeah. so this leper keeps appearing to him, this vision of this leprous man who's, like, missing body parts and is just yeah. exuding sickness. And there's a scene in that movie where he faces off against this ghoul in in the basement. You know, it's a scary place. Scary monster appears. It's, uh, everything he's afraid of, and it vomits on his face. Yeah. It's like that's really really gross, thing really for him. scary. Awesome. And yeah. for some reason, the filmmakers felt that should be a comedy moment, like because it's this big cathartic moment where he's finally facing his fear. He actually like looks at the monster, and says, "I'm not afraid of you," and then the monster vomits on him. Uh-huh. Uh, and for just like maybe two seconds or like four seconds. It's yeah, not just, like, just enough that the song registers. They play angel of the morning during just that call one me moment. Angel yeah. of the morning. Yeah. Like, and it's well, one of, like it's and awkwardly it's an, it's an, edited in. It's an insufferable wimpy song anyway. So it's meant to be played as like kind of this laugh moment. It's usually, but that's usually song when that song no, is in a movie. It's a joke. Yeah. Because that, it's so earnest and, mm, and just, sappy. Just touch my cheek before you leave me. Yeah, it's yeah. like a, and and that song has no significance to that character or to no. the movie otherwise. No. Uh, I understand that a big part of that movie was the first part of the movie was nostalgia, so there were a lot of like music cues from the nineteen eighties. But who cares? But why was Angel of the Morning suddenly in there? It's like and and that was like a pretty clear indicator that the filmmakers were trying to do too much at once. Mm. It's like we're not trying to really tell a story, we're just trying to put throw in a bunch of moods at the same time and have this fun scary cathartic moment like but it's funny at the same time. It just didn't work uh, in any sort of conceivable way, but they left it in the movie and everybody noticed because it was such a bad choice. It was weird reactions mm. to the opening. I was, I was at uh, one of the mm. premieres. Oh, not the premieres. I was at like one of the first mm. critic screenings, and it was just like everyone's like, "The fuck was that? <laughs> the fuck?" Um, I don't know, but that's a good question. Thank yeah. you so much for writing in. What we got next? Uh, let me see here. You can um, do it. Sorry, I, I, was, I was still like trying to think of songs. Here. Oh no, you're good. Here, here's a letter from <laughs> Alan. Hello, Alan. Hi, Alan. Uh, dear, this is also about the long goodbye. Oh. Uh, dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCule, I wanted to write in and see how much I enjoyed your review of the long goodbye, as well as how much I enjoyed the movie. First of all, I wanted to answer the question about my favorite Robert Altman movie. It has to be a Prairie Home Companion. The combination of Garrison Keillor's screenwriting with Robert Altman's directing style was wonderful, strange brew, and it reveals that their artistic sensibilities are not all that different. Second, I wanted to mention one of my favorite Philip Marlowe's, which was James Garner in the movie Marlowe, a movie in which James Garner uh, actually fights Bruce Lee and wins. In Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they once, uh, once again went into the old question of could Bruce Lee beat Muhammad Ali? Of course not. He couldn't even beat James Garner. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, then the question now becomes, could James Garner beat Muhammad Ali? Yes. 
No. It's the stupidest question in the world. No. No, he could not. Uh, It's true that The Long Goodbye is probably the darkest of the Philip Marlowe movies, but it's based on probably the darkest of the Philip Marlowe novels. Uh, It's important to remember that Altman was a Philip Marlowe fan uh, about as much as William Dozer was a Batman fan, and his stated Mm. purpose in making the movie was to put Marlowe to rest. I remember a critic writing that if you really wanted to put Marlowe to rest, a straight and faithful version of the depressing novel would have done the job just fine. Ha! The most bizarre moment of the film to me was seeing the funeral scenes in Mexico. The funeral dirge that was playing was the actual theme song to the movie, The Long Goodbye, which we there just addressed. There's also many cute references to other noir films, like Marlo referring to to a dog as Asta, who was the dog from the Thin Man Oh, movies. yeah, I forgot to mention that, yeah. Uh, I also wanted to say how much I enjoyed the movie and also to say, read the book. It's a great and very different from every other Raymond Chandler novel. It's over 300 pages and not it's much happens. Long, Chandler, yeah. And it's filled with wonderful and fascinating essays about the moral bankruptcy of American society. And some of the ways in which movie, the movie deviates from the book are quite interesting. A couple of interesting places in which The Long Goodbyes showed up in other movies. In The Long Kiss Goodnight, Samuel L. Jackson, playing a private eye, watches the movie on TV in his motel room. Also in Star Trek First Contact... Captain Picard, in his Dixon Hill persona, does something violent, which he says reminds him of a private eye in a detective story called The Big Goodbye, which is a combination of The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. Ha. The Big Goodbye is the, also the title of a Next Generation episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is my challenge to you. If you, have, if you have read The Big Sleep, try and explain the plot of the Bogart movie so that it can be understood by your listeners. Good luck. This is Alan signing off. I actually, here's the deal. I actually, I, I have read The Big Sleep. Okay. I have seen The Bogart movie. And Raymond Chandler famously said, having written the novel that The Big Sleep was based on, Mm -hmm. uh, that he couldn't figure out the plot of the movie. (laughs) And the problem with the plot of the movie is, and it's been a while since I've seen it, so fortunately I really can't walk you through it. I remember thinking to myself, this actually mostly tracks, but the problem is they just forget about a couple of subplots. There's like, I think there's like a missing chauffeur or something, Mm -hmm. and it just never comes back up again yeah, and, like it, and we, it kicks everything off but they just decide not to bother following that subplot anymore and we, there's a bunch of shit com- like that we already compared it to inherent vice in that regard yeah there's a bunch of stories and even the main character can't keep track of them all exactly so uh yeah the big sleep is a very very fun watch but it's one where it's it's so complicated your brain shuts off and you just start appreciating the style and the mm. acting um but um yeah yeah I don't want to say your brain shuts off, just you lose track. Yeah, I, that's, my, that's, my, uh, my brain just, I can hear my brain going, fuck it, you're, you're, I'm out of here. Your brain, your brain you hear gives footsteps up on, walking yeah. to the back of your brain, you hear door close. <laughs> why, do you want to, why do you want to adopt a child? Brain, don't say revenge, don't say revenge. Mouth, revenge, brain, that's it, I'm out of here. <laughs> exactly, the, that's, exactly that's, the Simpsons that's, gag. Simpsons gag. Yeah. Um, here's a letter from Jack. Hello, Jack. Hi, Jack. Um, dear Bibbs and Wit. Your recent episode of Critically Reclaimed about Raise the Titanic uh, reminded me of something I wanted to tell the world about but haven't been up to and haven't been able to up until now. Mm. This may be a controversial opinion, but I am the only person I know who will defend 2005's Sahara. Okay. To this day remains one of my favorite action movies. I think the action set pieces are a ton of fun. The Panama sequence remains a standout in my mind. The chemistry between Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn is fantastic. Their dialogue together is worth the ticket price alone. Oh, well, I mean, those two are both they're they're fun both charming actors yeah uh the opening credit sequence is one of the neatest and tightest ways i've ever seen a movie do an exposition dump set to dr john's right place wrong time and there are about 20 different classic rock songs in the soundtrack to hold your interest and not that this has to do anything with anything but it's funny that you mentioned the fact that dick tracy's theme sounded remarkably similar to batman's considering the main theme from sahara also sounds exactly like the main theme from batman but slower (laughs) 
Another movie was savaged by critics upon its release, and my under- it is my understanding that the reason for that was that the storyline was somewhat unrealistic. Yeah, and? <laughs> what are you expecting from a movie based on a Clive Cussler novel, of all things? It's fun, it does a good job of opening things up, uh, setting up the rules for a universe and sticking to them, which I feel is far more important in a movie than being strictly realistic. Uh, not only that, but a movie is actually toned down for some of the more ridiculous aspects of the book, the film begins near the end of the Civil War with a Confederate ironclad ship escaping down a river into the ocean. In the film, they were running silent in the fog to avoid being spotted by the Union blockade. In the novel, however, a Confederate captain had kidnapped Abraham Lincoln under Jefferson Davis' orders with the intention of ransoming him back to the Union, but when the Union Secretary of War found out about the plan, he refused Davis, and when Davis secreted London aboard the ironclad in an attempt to make it, avoid making a martyr out of him, the secretary staged John Wilkes Booth's assassination of Lincoln, <laughs> who was actually a double at Ford's theater, forcing the Confederates to keep Lincoln hidden and to avoid making the Union angry or angrier. <laughs> the Confederates end up escaping down all. the river, not through the clever strategy, but by bringing Lincoln out to the deck of the ship, forcing the Union soldiers on the banks to drop their guns and salute. Yes, the book is so much stupider than the movie. That really happens in that book? I don't oh know. I really, I gotta read that now. I, I, boy. Oh, that is nuts. I love it. <sighs> okay, you just sold me on Clive Cussler. <laughs> like, like, okay. I, had, I seriously it was sort of like Clive Cussler. Eh, do I really want it? Now I wanna. <laughs> if, if he's gonna go that, I thought you were saying that was in the movie, and I was like, I don't remember that in the movie. No, he, and now I realize that's that's, that's from the book. Yeah, <sighs> <laughs> they kidnapped Lincoln. <laughs> that's what the title should have been. <laughs> don't call it Sahara. That's oh vague. Yeah. They, they saved Lincoln's brain. Uh, <laughs> and the rest of him. <laughs> <laughs> they saved Grandpa's gauze. Uh, there is, there's one aspect that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, and mm. that is the film, uh, that is the movie's depiction of Mali. In the film, Mali is ruled by a dictator named Kazim, and there is a civil war raging between his forces and the Tuareg rebels. Mm. The thing is, though, the Tuareg the are a real group of people who had indeed rebelled against the Malian government several times before the movie's released, and indeed have done so several times since, with Run Rebellion st- starting only two years after the film came out. This means that the film is likely and unintentionally taking a side and supporting an actual group of people, raising an actual rebellion in an actual country, against a fictional dictator. I don't think the filmmakers were trying to, were thinking too hard about the implications they were creating. I think their hearts were probably in the right place, as the depiction of the Tuareg and the other Nigerians and Malians in the film is honestly pretty sensitive. The book contains a depiction of cannibalistic, quote, savages Uh, who kill and eat a visiting tour group, and thankfully the movie does not contain that. But it might be considered uh, problematic by today's standards, especially considering the producers bribed Moroccan officials to expedite filming, including $40,000 to stop a river improvement project, which, yikes. Yikes! (laughs) Don't take my word for it, though, as I could very easily be misinterpreted. Uh, misinterpreting things, please watch the movie for yourselves. I encourage you and your listeners to see this flick for the first time, or if they haven't seen it before, or revisit it with fresh eyes. Uh, I think you'll all be in for a treat. Sincerely yours, Jack. Um, have you seen Sahara? I forget if we've had this I, I didn't get to see okay. Sahara. I saw Sahara when it came out. I have vague memories of it. I do remember thinking to myself, because I saw it on like, home video, like after it was in theaters, um, that it really wasn't as bad as everyone said it was. Right. It, it, it was a little generic in some ways, but it was... Um, it was not terrible. That movie was directed by Breck Eisner, who uh, also directed the very good remake of The Crazies. 
which is a very, very entertaining horror movie. Uh, Breck Eisner at the time was considered a bit of a roll your eyes uh, get for this giant movie because Breck Eisner is the son of Michael Eisner, who for quite a few years ran Disney into the ground. And uh, everyone, I've never met anyone who's like a super duper fan of Disney who was like, Michael Eisner did a bang up job. <laughs> never known anyone who um, ever said that. I, th- I think it was Eisner who was in charge, like, really hated, like, the Disney animated canon, like, mm. wasn't interested in, um, like, making new films. It was just about sort of exploiting the dollar. And that's, the, yeah. but that's where we got a lot of things that people are really fond of. Like, what are we going to do with Goofy now? We're going to make him a sitcom dad and hence mm. Goof Troop. And a lot of people like Goof Troop. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that entire also, Eisner period he also oversaw, was bad. I mean, uh, the yeah. Disney renaissance happened in that time. I mean, like, yeah. you know, we, you got to give... I'm not sure how much of that was him, but you got to give credit where credit is due. He did oversee well, he, that. He, uh, from what I understand, his he he was the money, money, money guy. It's mm-hmm. like he went into like the animation studios. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to make money. That's yeah. all we're here to do. We're not making yeah. art. We're making money. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, he oversaw a lot of his those... decisions for the theme parks were eye rolling. People, people not a big fan. <laughs> um, but but in any case, that, that's that's neither here nor there. Uh, Sahara, uh, I haven't seen it since it came out. I'd have vague memories of it. Um, but uh, but yeah, what you bring is something interesting though, which is the idea of the movie incorporating into its fictional narrative real life uh, uh, issues affecting the world at large, in particular uh, elsewhere in the globe. Uh, a lot of movies are very eager to be topical. Mm-hmm. They think topicality will make them popular or seem extra relevant. Oh, we got to see this, or oh, I was just hearing about that on the news. I understand this. Um, mm. A lot of uh, uh, a lot of movies with this really, really hard. And uh, I, I'm in particular. I remember uh, a lot of movies, or at least uh, several noteworthy movies in the '80s, uh, incorporating the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is long before 9/11. Uh, this is back when uh, the Taliban was actually fighting uh, the the Russians in mm-hmm. Afghanistan when they were trying to uh, break downward. Um, James Bond teamed up with the Taliban. That's right. At the end of, uh, I believe it was the Living Daylights, uh, the uh, the uh, James Bond's new girlfriend was uh, a cellist, and she was uh, uh, giving a concert. And uh, the Taliban forces that James Bond befriended were late to the concert, and they show up covered in guns, and they say, uh, "It's uh, uh, sorry, we're late. We had trouble at the airport." No, isn't that funny? Yeah, that is that, 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 that is aged that very pl- poorly. That plays incredibly well. That yeah, is aged very poorly. Uh, uh, Rambo teamed up with the Taliban in mm-hmm. Rambo Three, uh, and um, it's another one where it teamed up against the Russians because the Russians were the villain du jour. Um, that movie, I think, aged a little better than the one than the Bond film does in its portrayal of the Taliban, but also it's extremely uh, kind of one sided and funny. Like, well, they're against the Russians, so they must be. Completely awesome. Hmm. Um, so yeah, doesn't always go well. Doesn't and always doesn't a, always isn't always conducive to longevity. There's also a, a tendency um, to exploit the well-known uh, ignorance of Americans. Well, uh, that the truth. Uh, you know, we, we are uh, 
and you see these statistics coming out all the time about how people can't like find certain countries on a map. They've never seen a map before. They're just yeah. completely ignorant to geography and world politics and the rest of the world in general. Uh, There's and, a general lack of curiosity uh, yeah, in the American uh, spirit right now. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I mentioned uh, how, how shocked I was when traveling to Europe as a teenager, how they're required to learn multiple languages. And a lot of the people we ran into did speak English. And, mm-hmm. and no American history better than we do. Yeah, they know American history. Uh, and that's not... Things that really happen with the American educational system because it sucks. Yeah, um, <laughs> I wish it didn't. So but, uh... it, it's so it happens in American movies a lot, where they'll take a real country, but they'll kind of make up a government for it, uh, yeah, or, or they'll a make lot, up yeah. a le- or they'll just make up a country. That, and that has always driven me crazy. As as a kid mm. who did play Where in the World Is Carmen Sandiego and did look at maps and it was was aware of like other countries. Well, how do you feel? It when, like, really anno- annoyed me when they made up a country. It's like you think I'm dumb. Well, I know that's fake. Well, but sometimes you need to do something or you want to do something fictional uh, with the, the world, mm-hmm. not just with a character, but the world at large. Uh, and you don't want to like throw yeah, a country in, under incur, the bus, incur the wrath of an, well, an actual country. Like for example, Doctor Doom. In the uh, Marvel comics, uh, he's, he's, he's a, the leader of a whole country. Now, which real life country do you want to say has been taken over by Doctor Doom? Ukraine. <laughs> he's Ukrainian. Come on, I don't like, know. No, my point is, my point is this: you he, make up a fictional country you, he's, because of fictional country. He's Eastern him. European, though, right? He is. He's from a place called Latveria, which yeah. sounds a lot like Latvia, but isn't the same. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so yeah, he's the ruler of a fictional country because making him a ruler of an actual country would be kind of fucked up. <laughs> uh, so that one makes a bit of sense. So sometimes there's a justification yeah. for that. I, Other times it feels really arbitrary. I never really understood why Superman just didn't live in New York. Yeah. That, that always yeah. struck me as like a weird, arbitrary choice. I, I guess no, no, they no, wanted to be. New York is public domain it's not like yeah. there's a copyright on new york yeah yeah that was always the big difference for a long time for me when i was a kid it was like well S- spider-man and captain america and all those yeah, guys they, they live, live in, in new a, york like real american cities no well yeah and that means they're real <laughs> of course that didn't come marvel comics uh like didn't start doing that until um, actually i don't know like the early days of marvel comics no, like in, in the 30s if there was those were set in real cities or fake ones i don't recall honestly yeah. but i do like, remember where, they were very is, they were very set in the real world I mean, they were fighting world the, war ii name where the submariner hanging. yeah I don't, I don't recall actually mm-hmm. but again they were set during world war ii they were trying to focus on real world events a little bit mm-hmm. so there was always a bit more steeped in in captain america did fight you know the, the actual nazi party but also yes. the red skull which is like uh, off to the side, super Nazi. Well, look, at the, in the cover of one of Captain America's comics, like one of his first comics, mm. he punched out he's, Hitler. He's punching Hitler in the face. So look, yeah. we've already look. We already know we can beat Hitler. There's got to be. Who do you get as a villain? You got to come up with someone new. So, someone even more evil than Hitler. Well, shit. How about a guy who's just got a red skull for a head? Yeah, yeah that looks pretty evil. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but anyway, thank you for writing in. We actually had a few comments like on Twitter as well from people who wanted to defend Sahara. And yeah, it sounds like Sahara, even though, seriously, look up the behind-the-scenes financial shenanigans on Sahara. It's yeah, not cool what happened. Like, it was yeah. bad. Well, but uh, the movie the... that actually cut out of it, there are worse films. What I find really curious is you find out about these sort of scandals, about the making mm. of Sahara, of all things, which is a bomb at the time. Oh, huge bomb. But it wasn't a bomb because of these scandals, in fact, you'll probably, if you know enough about film production, you'll probably find a lot of unsavory stuff going on all the time on a lot, yeah. on a lot of the bigger productions because they need to spend a lot of money and make sure that they can you know, shoot in certain ways. 
if you look up what uh, uh, what happened behind the scenes during the making of the Hobbit movies mm. in terms of labor contracts with the country of New Zealand, oh. you'll find some super unethical shit. Uh, I was unaware the, of this. The studio um, was influencing local politics and they were funding certain politicians' uh, campaigns so they would get elected and relax union worker union contract laws with the local labor so that these studios could film these Hobbit films for way cheaper than they would otherwise and also bring in a lot of American talent and not have to hire locally and pay as much as they would demand in mm. New Zealand. They changed labor laws so they could film yeah. filmed Hobbit movies. Like, they actually got people put in office. This is something a studio did. This is, like, unbelievably unethical and really, mm. really shady. And yet, you learn about this, and you're kind of like, you're still watching the movies, but taking them with a grain of salt. When we learn a single actor has committed a horrendous crime, or is a sex criminal, we don't watch that actor's movies anymore. Well, it becomes uh, harder to. It, yeah. it, it some, becomes, some people manage. I don't yeah, know how, but yeah. So, it, you know, uh, you, you hear about, you know, the crimes uh, somebody committed and you don't want to watch those movies and you kind of push them out of the conversation and we yeah. don't, we don't let them make we movies don't, we don't, we don't, we don't want to contribute to their legal fund. Yeah. But we do that with companies. We let them yeah. back in. Yeah, we know true. that these companies are, are doing these things that are even like more evil and have long lasting repercussions in other countries. They're, mm -hmm. you know, influencing global politics so they can make a movie and we just, A, we don't hear about it. And if we do, we kind of just let it happen because that's, yeah. we're, I think we're just a lot more cynical about corporations. And, you know, we're not boycotting Warner Brothers now yeah. because they are doing these unsavory things. So Sahara isn't an isolated incident. It's not because they did these bad things that got the film in trouble. Films are doing it does, it does, like that it does lot. affect the word of mouth. It does affect mm. uh, the way the movie is yeah. uh, uh, sort of presented. Like, you know, oh, should we see Sahara? No, I heard bad things. Like that kind yeah. of thing. That that can be an impact. I'm mm. certain. But also, yeah, apparently people just weren't that interested. Uh, um, more than anything, I think people just weren't interested in Sahara. Yeah. All right, uh, let's do one more. All right, here's a letter from Eric. Hi, Hi Eric. Eric. It's about Garth Marenghi. Um, Dear Bins and Whitney, thank you for reviewing Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It is one of my favorite shows. Uh, during your, sh uh, your review, you brought up Stephen King's performance in his trailer for Maximum Overdrive. Yes! Stephen King has said that when he directed that movie, he was dealing with a very serious addiction to cocaine, and I feel that is probably why he acted and appeared the way he did during that promo. That would not be surprising. Uh, he's been very open about his, his cocaine addiction. Yeah. Oh yeah, his all of his substance um, abuse issues, he's been very, and honestly, yeah. good for him. Mm. We need more people to be, uh, he, it, uh, it's no one's responsibility to be open about all the troubles that they're going through, but when people are, and they can be positive mm. and talk about about how they can work their way through it, it destigmatizes it, and yeah, that does yeah. and that does help. But mm -hmm. no one's under any obligation to. I want to make that clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it probably also explains why the movie itself isn't very good. Mm. Fortunately, he has since sobered up and given us better films and stories. In your opinion, what are some more notable performances that actors have given while they were high or otherwise inebriated? Uh, I realize this can be a depressing topic, but I am just curious. Thanks for taking the time to read my letter. Keep up the great work, Eric. Uh, uh, P.S. He also included a clip for us of Matt Berry reading the letter that Elvis Presley sent to President Nixon. It's three minutes long. Nice. Um, uh, so this is a, this is a topic, and I want to make sure I want to be clear here because uh, substance abuse is not fun. Uh, it's not funny. Uh, it's something that obviously it's 
it's an illness that people struggle with often for their entire lives, mm-hmm. and uh, some people so overcome it, and good for them. Some people we, we're not making light of no, no, addiction, no. but there are people who have uh, wrestled with that addiction, or have had, or have just been drunk mm-hmm. on camera and have given performances that are. Very clearly drunk yeah. on camera. And uh, for me, the one where... And again, I don't think these are fun. I usually mm. think, like, oh, that's too bad. Uh, but there's a performance where it, it's an actor who I... This was actually one of my introductions to them, unfortunately. Ooh, okay. And I had heard that they were such an incredible actor. Uh, and, and indeed they are. Mm. Uh, but have you ever seen... The 1970 Julius Caesar starring Jason Robards as Brutus. Uh, Jason Robards. Wow. Okay. Jason Robards. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> that was, uh, he was, um, he, he, uh, 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 it, it looks like he was reading off cue cards. Mm. Like, it looks like he's barely present. I, I don't know uh, what's up with that. I've seen other performances from him where he is really, really talented. I've heard stories that he might have been drunk on set during that and just wasn't mm-hmm. really into it. But uh, it's weird because he's a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. He absolutely can be a brilliant actor. He won two Academy Awards back-to-back for crying out loud. One of only, like, I think four actors to ever do that. Mm-hmm. Um but wow, yeah, that's that's that one was rough. I gotta, I gotta be answered. That, um, that was rough. I, there's a really, co- I, I recommend you see this movie just because of how crazy it is. But uh, there's this uh, really bizarre uh, kind of the omen, vaguely science fiction knockoff called The Visitor. Oh, um, yeah. And that and movie send, is fucking weird. It's just like. Uh, uh, it's John Houston plays uh, an alien from another planet who is trying to influence the Antichrist who's just been born into being a Christ. Like the, <laughs> she's like this empty vessel child yeah. who can either be the Antichrist or the new Messiah. But it's going to depend on the influence from evil Lance Hendrickson or benevolent John Houston and uh, you know, the, the child like gets a gun for her ninth birthday and shoots somebody or a ninth birthday party. And mm. Shelly Winters is in it as a maid. Uh, and Sam Peckinpah appears in the movie and the story goes that Sam Peckinpah was so intoxicated on set that you could not understand him. Mm. Like he, they shot his scenes and he just slurred his speech. So they had to dub his dialogue and put his footage in the movie while dubbing him over. It's like the most bizarre thing. Mm. Um, I, I remember seeing natural born killers, with Robert Downey Jr. And that's when Robert Downey Jr. was also struggling with some cocaine addiction. Yeah. He's also been very open about his addictions. Uh, and yeah, he's just clearly, uh, you know, a, a little bit intoxicated on the set. He's a very good actor, but I think he, you can see his energy levels are a little bit teetering in that film, especially if you watch the special features on the DVD, you see some interviews with Robert Downey Jr. And you can tell that he's like really inebriated in those, um, I think it informs the performance. That's such a crazy movie that that kind of cocaine energy just kind of falls in line with everything else. And actually, I don't want to say it like positively informs his performance, but you can say how. Uh, yeah, it has an impact. It, it has an you know, yeah, it changes sort of the, the texture of the movie. I remember I was listening to the commentary track for Mulrats. Mm. Uh, and it's the opening scene or 
it's the opening scene. One or if the opening scene or one of the opening mm-hmm. scenes with uh, Jeremy London and Claire Forlani, just mm-hmm. the two of them in the scene, and Kevin Smith is doing a commentary track, and he was just like, I, I don't want to like say who it was. Uh, but let me just say, one of the actors in this scene was was stoned the in, entire uh, movie. Now I don't want to say which one it was, but he. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know how true that was. I'm just quoting. Is clearly it was certainly a joke. I don't think he was complaining too much. No, we, well, know, I, mean, I think I think being stoned on a Kevin Smith set is not an uncommon occurrence. Yeah. But it's, it's such a laid back movie. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, uh, and one gets the impression that like you know. What was the story that like when Seth Rogen changed offices at a studio, they had to like super like duper clean yeah. <laughs> because it's not so much of weed, you know? So like there's that's you can come really complain about that. But um yeah. but oh, anyway. and I, I know uh, and I heard a story um where Billy Bob Thornton when he was making Bad Santa. Oh yeah, I heard uh, this too. He plays a he plays a character named Willie who is an alcoholic and who's drunk and almost the character is drunk in almost all of his scenes. Yeah. And uh uh, he and the director, Terry Zweigoff, uh, wanted to experiment. They, uh, mm-hmm. Billy Bob Thornton says, no, I'm not drinking. I'm not going to get drunk. You're not professional, yeah. That's, yeah I, but uh, they did want to do one scene. What would happen if we did get you drunk? Like, it, just drink as much as you possibly can, deliberately, yeah. and, and just go on set and play goes, the yeah. scene. And uh, the scene where he, like, falls over uh, in, uh, like, a diorama and, like, smashes him with his fists and his heels, uh, he was actually, like, incredibly intoxicated for that scene. And, okay. Um, and neither he nor Terry Zweigoff liked it. They left it in the movie because they did it. It's like, yeah, this is this experiment. Let's see how yeah. it plays. Let's just cut it into the movie. Uh, but yeah, they, they feel like he was just embarrassing himself and he was yeah. flailing too much and the scene doesn't play very well. So they did experiment with yeah. like actually intoxicating well, and, and the again, actor. You know, you're, you're, you're being asked to play these things. We mm. just have to be professional. Mm. Uh, and uh, sometimes they may seem like a good idea. Well, hey, let's... This character's supposed to be drunk. Let's actually get them drunk. But ultimately, what that leaves you with is a drunk during, actor, yeah, not a drunk character. Just on the set, yeah. drunk, and that's not really conducive to anything. And uh, one story I remember about this was when they were filming uh, the original Evil Dead, mm. uh, uh, you know, which was this incredibly low budget production, just a bunch of college kids in the woods mm. trying to figure out how to make a movie, and it's a miracle it made sense, let alone became a horror classic. Um, but there's a scene in the movie where they're all just like hanging around before all the horror hits. They're just hanging around in the cabin and smoking pot. And um, they were like, hey, let's, we were like, hey, let's be like cool and let's uh, like do this whole scene where we're actually smoking pot and see what happens. It turns out it's boring and interminable and no one can remember the lines <laughs> and it was all a complete waste of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and uh, some filmmakers like to add to that mystique. Uh, John Waters has spoken mm. to this and it's like, oh, yeah, we, we were. In some interviews, they say, oh, yeah, we were really high a lot of the time when we were making stuff like Pink Flamingos back in the day. And then, uh, and that was when he was younger in, in these interviews. And then later I says, no, we weren't high all the time. You can't be high all the time. You're making a movie all day. Mm-hmm. How much weed do you think we're consuming? Yeah. You, know, you, you give you a headache. You get bored. You, you, you just fall you asleep. Can't, you can't stay high all day long while you're making a film. Yeah. Maybe we were high here and there. Some of the actors might have been high while making yeah. uh, Pink Flamingos. Uh Divine evidently stone cold sober when she ate the dog poo. Uh, <laughs> That's a sentence you just said. Uh, yeah. Bless you, Pink Flamingos. Pink Flamingos is a classic. I'm not denying that. <laughs> but you need a strong stomach. <laughs> Apparently, since. And so, so did Divine. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Judge, anyway. What I admire about Pink Flamingos, it's still disgusting. It's lost none of its edge. <laughs> it was made in the 1970s and it's still gross. Awesome. All right, well, anyway, that is it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Uh, if you want to write in for a future episode of We've Got Mail, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. Box. Whitney, what is it? Uh, critically Acclaimed Network, 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. One of these days, I will have heard you say that enough mm. that I remember it. <laughs> like, can, I check the you, box. I you know can, who it is. You can just... write it down no. and read it off of a piece of paper. Paper? You have paper and pen with an arm's reach. What do you... Shh. Don't, give, don't tell people my <laughs> secrets. Um, but anyway, that's that's it. You can also, if you if you want to contact us, but you don't want to uh, actually write in, we're also on Twitter. Uh, we are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. Uh, I, I want to thank the people who have reached out to me about purchasing my radio dramas recently. I've oh, sold, yeah. sold a handful of them recently. That's and, great. Um, Thank you for, for purchasing, and I hope you enjoy. I hope yeah. they don't all stink. Um, I'm writing another one right now, so yeah. Yeah, and if uh, and if you join the Patreon at the uh, twenty dollar tier, uh, you get those at no extra car- uh, no extra charge, and yeah. that's all part yeah. of the backlog. So uh, you can go to Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, and we have a lot of different uh, exclusive uh, features. Uh, and uh, again, you get access to the whole backlog for all of them. So we got stuff about Star Trek, Batman, uh, Disney. Uh, not at the moment, but we had that show for a while. All of those episodes are still available. We did uh, giant retrospective of Firefly. Uh, we got commentary tracks. We got a lot. Uh, and it's all available over there at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And you get to vote for uh, every week on the show Critically Reclaimed. Mm. We talked about a lot this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that show. Thank you, everybody, for listening to all of our shows. We're incredibly grateful to you. A big special thank you to our patrons, without whom we wouldn't be here. But everyone who's listening, whether you can afford to be a patron or not, we're grateful to have you here. Thank Mm. you so much for joining the show. Uh, uh, And um, yeah, just just thanks you. Just just thanks. 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 Sincerely, yours, Bibbs and Whitney. 